The Oracle Network. Look deeper. I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. If you want to skip the preamble and just get straight to the case, just skip forward to about 8 minutes 40 seconds into the podcast. But if you want to hear us waffle, then stay with us. Please do. I just wanted to start the podcast this week on a serious note. Black Lives Matter. There's been a huge amount of coverage on the Black Lives Matter movement following the death of George Floyd on 25th of May this year. There have been swathes of podcasts that have chosen not to put out an episode this week as a way of promoting the Black Lives Matter movement, with others instead replacing their scheduled podcast with the reading of hundreds of names of those who have been victims of hate crimes or who have suffered at the hands of those who are employed to protect us. I've thought long and hard about whether we, the Sublime True Crime, should do the same. And I've come to the conclusion that we should put out an episode as normal. Not because we disagree with what others have done, and not because we hold anything against the Black Lives Matter campaign. We've chosen to put an episode out for more or less the same reasons that we chose not to take a postseason break. That is, as the world around us burns and the abnormal becomes the standard, we hope that our little podcast brings a little bit of familiarity, a glimmer of light, and possibly even some comfort into your week. And one last thing, it's right to fight for what you believe in. Whether you're marching on the street, publicly stating your opinions on social media, or even supporting in the tiniest of ways, keep doing it. As for Elaine and I, we see you, we hear you, we support you, and everyone involved in trying to make the world a little bit nicer and a little more fair has our utmost respect and gratitude. With love, from us both. Absolutely. Anyway, this week we've got two promos, so let's start with I Said Goddamn. Hey True Crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDpodcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Make sure you go and listen, subscribe, rate, like, share. We've also got another promo from a fellow Oracle Network podcast, friend of the show, and possibly Elaine's favourite podcast, Malice Podcast. I do love it. Ariel, you're amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Ariel, take it away. Hi, everyone. I'm Ariel Cooksey, host of Malice. When violent acts occur, we tend to think the predators are monsters. Surely no human could do such things. But if we're honest... Only humans commit malicious crime. And if you're like me, you want to know why. To find out, join me at Malice, wherever you listen to podcasts. Bye. Thank you, Ariel. And Ariel has just dyed her hair a fantastic electric blue colour. Have you seen it? I love her hair. I wish I was there brave enough to do that. I have actually got some bright coloured dye upstairs, but I keep wimping out. <laughs> do it! Do it while you're in lockdown. Do it! Green hair. <laughs> You did try the red. I did do some bright red, pillar box red. It didn't come out as pillar box red. 
No. But it was quite nice and bright. And you can still kind of see it in your hair. Just a little bit. A little bit there. Yes. Um, what have we been doing this week? Oh, what have we been doing this week? Well, um, this week I've finally been back from furlough. Yay! Hey! <laughs> Nine Thank weeks on furlough. God. And uh, I think I had forgotten just how tiring it is working. I think I you had. Knackered. I think you'd forgotten. Mm. I've been working all the way through this lockdown and <laughs> educating two children and running a house while somebody's been slouching around doing podcast stuff and sleeping for most of the time. Yeah, I think you've forgotten it was really tiring. Yeah. <laughs> As a result, yeah, this has been recorded on Sunday because uh, the week has just gotten away. It has. It's been really busy. It's been really busy for both of us. It has. Yes. Um, What's we done? Oh, it was, it was my, my son's birthday. It was. He turned 13, became a teenager. Oh, my God. I have two teenage children. You do? Um, yes, yeah, so that was that was lovely. Had a nice time mm-hmm. there. Distantly and, saw my family. Oh, yeah, we did, didn't Social we? Social distant birthday cake. I think that's the first time, well, it is the first time we've actually gone out in nine weeks and seen two different households. Yes. From a socially distant... It is, in a very distant way, but yeah, yeah, it was the first time. We were all sort of like dodging around trying not to get too close to each other and like retreating halfway up a garden. <laughs> yeah, your family is very tactile, isn't it? They like hugs, they like stuff like that and um it was very odd to see you all yeah acting like me going don't hug me yeah. <laughs> don't stay hug, away not a hugger stay back <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, so that, that was that was lovely so i've got balloons and banners and stuff up around the house for yes, birthdays indeed. which is lovely um yeah that's think, about it really i think that's probably oh i had my book club you did <laughs> you had your book club online um, i had a zoom book club zoom book club um otherwise known as wine club my dad calls it Booze Club. Booze Club, yeah. <laughs> and in honour of that, <laughs> I did spend most of Friday with a raging hangover because I was wittering away quite merrily while on Zoom call and drinking very freely. Yes. I don't think it was helped by the fact you had someone sitting next to you who readily got you drinks without you thinking about it. Yeah, so I like brandished my glass vaguely in your direction. You filled it for me. I did indeed. I'm, Such a good boyfriend. I know you really are. We read a fantastic book, actually which is by Bernadine Evaristo, uh, Girl, Woman, Other, which is fabulous. Highly recommend it. Fabulous. Yes. It's a load of stories about um, about black women and their experiences. And then she sort of ties them all together in their relationships as well. It's really brilliant. We, we all, well, no, not all. We majority. <laughs> Was it five out of six of you loved it? Yeah. One of the six of you didn't like it, but hadn't actually read it? Hadn't read it. Yeah, had listened to some of the Radio 4 adaptation. And yes. That was it. <laughs> but it was actually really good really really good um, on to our reviews would you like to read this one out okay uh, so this is by Heroes of Our Time I'm a big fan of true crime and initially when I came across the podcast was a little sceptic of the length being used to the longer true crime podcasts and wondering if this one could do the crime justice in such a short period of time after listening to a few I found it's nothing like the others and that's a good thing instead of a serious narration style with a few well written jokes the presenters narrate in such a way it's like you're sat around having a few beers with them, listening to two people discussing a case. Dan's humour puts a warm tone to the production, keeping things fun and flowing in the podcast. And I'm glad when he admits on air that he didn't know things, as I'm at a loss too. Elaine brings her own style of humour and perfectly resonates with Dan to make the podcast enjoyable, relaxed listening while dealing with some of the gruesome crimes in the UK. Hey, thank you. That's lovely, thank you. If you would like to leave us a review, and we would love you to leave us a review... You can do it at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. Ooh, there we go. There we go. Yeah, um, we do. We, we, um, we do aim to make it quite a, a chatty podcast. 
yeah, I think everyone who listens to podcasts has their own preference as to what they like. And I've seen it on the podcast chat groups when people say, what length should the episodes be and what should I do and what this, and it's always different answers. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, any podcast I've done, I've always wanted it to be 20, 30 minutes long. Um, and I think for true crime, especially the amount of waffle we're doing at the moment, I think that's about the right length. <laughs> yeah, we better get on with it. It's all about the length. <laughs> uh, yes, we will do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. So please head over to the website and leave us a review. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a Patreon and get access to the Sublime Extra Time episodes where we go into a little more detail about the cases we're covering off. All you need to do is go to patreon.com forward slash sublime true crime. On to this week's case. We've got two titles for this one. Death at the Hands of a Barber. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or the Bury Me in a Y-Shaped Coffin Killer. Yes. When Susan Barber married her husband, Michael, in 1970, she was just 17 years old. Michael was seven years older, aged 24 years old. I'm glad you put that in there for me with a bit of maths there, darling. Well done. (laughs) I know you struggle sometimes. (laughs) And the pair had a six-month-old daughter. I say the pair had a six-month-old daughter. Susan certainly did, and Michael certainly believed that he did. But what he didn't know was that it was actually another man's child. Oh, dear. Susan never let on to this fact, and in the following 11 years of marriage, the pair had two more children. What did they? (laughs) (laughs) Susan had two more children. (laughs) Living in a terraced house at 29 Osborne Road, Westcliff-on-Sea in Essex, you'd be forgiven for paying it no attention if you passed by it today. A busy tree-lined road, packed with either cars or yellow lines as far as the eye can see. A pretty standard sight for the busy parts of Essex. It's a snapshot of English suburbia. At a glance, the lives of the barbers would seem stagnatingly normal. Having said that, Michael had been in trouble with the police before. He was a known car thief and had a criminal record for the same. In 1972, he was charged with the indecent assault of his six-year-old niece. And frustratingly, I can't find out any more detail other than that. I think it's a sign of the the times when this happened that it's very sparse information online. Whereas nowadays, it's all over the place, isn't it? Mm. The marriage was never a happy one. Michael had a temper and Susan had an insatiable sexual appetite that Michael simply couldn't keep up with. They'd even split on at least two occasions, always getting back together in the end. This was despite the fact that just a few weeks after getting married, the then 17-year-old Susan had started an affair with Richard Collins, a 15-year-old neighbour. What is it they say? Never shit on your own doorstep? If you're going to have an affair, that rule's got to be joint top along with don't dip your pen in the company ink, right? I know. And he he was a really close neighbour. I think he lived three doors down yeah. with his parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As Michael made his way to work at the Rothman Cigarette Factory in Basildon at 5am every morning, Richard would make his way into the house and, and immediately hop into bed with Susan. The affair went on for years, and as Richard got to his late teens, he would even play in the same darts team as Michael, while Susan would keep scores, all the time while shagging his teammates misses the cheeky sod. Double top. (laughs) (laughs) On the morning of Saturday the 31st of March 1981, having finished work for the week, Michael left home at 4am to go to the Thames Estuary with friends for a spot of fishing. Sod that. I was just thinking that, yeah. Fishermen are crazy. He hadn't reckoned on the weather being so bad that day, though, and with high winds battering the water and the fishermen alike, he returned home early. And if Michael had felt surprised by the weather, you can only imagine how shocked he was to find his neighbour in bed with his wife. Mm. Getting home shortly after 5am and heading upstairs to bed, 
Michael found a terrified Richard Collins, stark bollock naked in the bedroom, scrabbling around for his clothes. Stark bollock naked. I love that phrase. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Unable to keep calm, Michael punched Richard in the mouth before the scared lover was able to get out of the house. So scared was Richard that he chose to move to his brother's house in South End for a couple of weeks to keep out of the way. And some of the things that I read said yep. that he ran down the street naked because apparently he disrobed <laughs> downstairs. And so he just fled, leaving his clothes behind. I read one report. Um, in fact, it was a book. Um, and it was going into detail about how they'd undressed each other in the living room. and There were clothes scattered all over the place. And how as he ran down the stairs, he fleetingly made a, a decision not to grab his clothes. But there was so much that was artistic license in there, I couldn't use it. Yes. But yeah, I did read that he'd run naked down the road. <laughs> <laughs> um, he may have gone to South End, but for anyone who knows the area, South End and Westcliff, they're down the road from each other. So it's literally the next town along. I thought Westcliff was basically a part of South End. Pretty much. Pretty much. Mm. Um, so yeah, he didn't get that far away, did he? <laughs> Not really. I wonder if he still went to his darts match. <sighs> I'd be scared in case uh, Michael threw a dart at my arse. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> but your arse you'd be worried about, wouldn't it? <laughs> Michael, meanwhile, turned his attention to his wife, hitting her hard on the right ear. The punch caused painful bruising to Susan's ear. Within a couple of days, she visited the doctor to have it looked at. As the doctor heard what had happened, he offered to help the pair resolve their marital difficulties where possible, and Susan readily agreed. Back at home, and on the back of the doctor's advice, it originally looked like the couple would patch up their personal problems and carry on. Susan swore she would never cheat again. Although I do wonder if she admitted it had been going on for 10 years. Mm. Michael believed her, but within days, they'd gotten to a point where they were not on speaking terms, instead communicating through their children. Right. Firstly, that's a shitty thing to do. Leave your kids out of it, because I still remember my parents doing that to me, and that was 35 years ago. It is shitty behaviour. Secondly, where on earth were the kids when Richard was popping in and out of Susan's family, I mean, bed? The, (laughs) The eldest must have been 10, 11 I mean, when my age, mine with that age, I struggled having sex with the person I was supposed to be having sex with without being interrupted. Much less if I was trying to bang someone in the family home. I mean, the kids are always in and out of doors at that age. Yeah, they are. And also just just generally having kids in the house is a bit of a passion killer. I can't imagine trying to smuggle somebody into the house. Mm. I should say, it's just insane. I don't know how she did it. Yeah. But. Yes, Susan, incidentally, continued her affair with Richard. Just over two months later, and Michael and Susan had seemingly got past their conflict. They were still together, and to all intents and purposes, had reconciled. Wednesday the 3rd of June had been just another run-of-the-mill day. After getting home from work, the family sat down to steak pie and settled down for the evening. Life had returned to normal. Oh, steak pie. (laughs) The following day at work, Michael complained of a severe headache. Seeing the on-site nurse, he was given some painkillers. The following day, the headache was still there but was now accompanied by stomach pains. This continued through to the following day too, but with added symptom of vomiting. Susan was worried enough to call the doctor, and Michael was quickly prescribed antibiotics and a linctus. That's a painkiller that suppresses coughs, apparently. I didn't know that. I had to look it up. But Michael's condition continued to worsen. A couple of days later, and not only had Michael not improved, but he was now struggling to breathe. He was taken by ambulance. For free. Thanks fuck for the NHS. To South End General Hospital and immediately placed in intensive care, placed on a ventilator and given sedatives. Following a multitude of tests, it was thought that he may be suffering from Good Pastures Syndrome, a rare disease which brings about lung and kidney problems. Susan had been a constant visitor to Michael while he was in South End Hospital, 
but by Wednesday the 17th of June, with a severe kidney condition now also added to the list of ailments and good pasture syndrome ruled out, the decision was made to transport him 60 miles away to Hammersmith Hospital, who were deemed better equipped to help him. The doctors couldn't figure out what was causing Michael's condition, but with his health worsening, they prepared Susan for the worst. They told her that her husband was seriously ill, with a low chance of survival, and they were surprised at how calmly she took the news. Despite being a 90-minute drive away, and again, if you don't know the area, going from um, Essex and South End and Westcliff to Hammersmith, which is the other side of London, is a pain in the ass. Susan still visited Michael when he'd been transferred to Hammersmith. Staff at the hospital noted she was often accompanied by a man in his 20s who tended to stay out of the way, sitting in the corridor while Susan sat with Michael. Hmm, I wonder who that could possibly be and why they didn't go in themselves <laughs> to visit. Hmm. Can you guess who that was? Yes, fresh from fucking him in the marital bed, Susan would go to visit Michael with Richard, the bloke who she'd been cheating on him with for a decade. Classy. <sighs> Back on the ward and having ruled out just about every infection they could think of, the registrar in respiratory medicine discussed the idea of paraquat poisoning. Paraquat is a weed killer, often known under the brand name Gramoxone. According to Healthline.com, paraquat poisoning causes the following symptoms. Quote, Immediately after ingesting or inhaling a toxic amount of paraquat, an individual is likely to have swelling and pain in the mouth and throat. Soon after, they may experience nausea, abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhoea that may be bloody. The gastrointestinal symptoms are often severe. They can lead to both dehydration and low blood pressure. One may also experience nosebleeds and difficulty breathing. End quote. And if you're playing along at home, please join me in tick, tick, ticking the boxes. Yeah, pretty much everything there, isn't it? It really is, isn't it? Blood and urine samples were taken and sent to the National Poisons Reference Centre at New Cross in South London for analysis. But somebody, somewhere, cocked up. The samples were not sent to the centre and when they were chased up internally, it was thought that the tests had come back as negative and I've no idea if this was someone covering up their cock-up or just two separate cock-ups. I suspect the former, to be fair. Yes. On the 27th of June, 1981... Michael Barber died, which Susan was told by phone. The official cause of death stated on the death certificate was cardiac arrest, renal or kidney failure, and bilateral pneumonia. The following Tuesday, Professor David Evans carried out the post-mortem. Samples were taken from the major organs, which were then removed and placed in a labelled bucket, filled with formalin, which is a preserving fluid, and then the bucket was placed in the anteroom of the mortuary. And I can't get over the fact it's the term bucket. I assume it must be a medical bucket of some kind, but I've just got visions in my head of some dirty old window cleaner's bucket that they're chucking bits of organ into. I think it is just basically like a bucket. Really? Yeah, I Grim. think so. I'm trying to think where I've seen it. Was it on my £600 life when they, they cut out massive chunks of skin and just <laughs> plop it in a little bucket at the side of the room? <laughs> it could be any of those programmes you watch. It could be People Popper when she's cutting lumps out of people. Oh, God, I love those type of programmes. I should have been a doctor. You should have been. Really Still should have been. Now I'm too old, <laughs> sadly. Professor Evans decided that no firm conclusions could be reached, though the pathologists involved still felt that the findings suggested paraquat poisoning. But they held off saying more until they'd had a chance to examine histology slides, which is basically looking at cells through a microscope. Michael's death was the start of a very busy week for Susan. Dying on the Saturday, Michael's cremation took place just six days later on the following Friday. And if that wasn't hectic enough... 
Susan also had to deal with Richard moving into her home the following day. Bloody hell, she moved fast. I wonder how her children reacted to that. Meet your new dad. Yeah, your dad died. Don't worry, though. I've got you a new one. (laughs) You'll know him from every morning. (laughs) Yep, you heard that right. Exactly a week after Michael had died and just a day after he'd been cremated, the man who his wife had cheated on him with moved into the family home. Fucking hell, what on earth must those kids be thinking? They just lost their dad. I know. It's unbelievable. She just... Her, oh, I don't know. I just my brain is boggled by just how completely insensitive and thoughtless she is. So, quote teenagers, I can't even. I can't even. <laughs> as well as gaining a new housemate and live-in lover, Susan also came into some money. Michael's employers, Rothmans, paid her a fifteen thousand pound death benefit lump sum, which was quite a bit back then, as well as an annual allowance for each of her three kids, thought to be worth over three thousand three hundred pounds per annum. The money didn't come through until October, though, and by then, Susan had already split up with Richard. They'd lasted six whole weeks. What is it uh, they say about you don't know the the, uh, the person you're in love with until you live with them? Yes. Ten years, shagging, fine. Yeah. Six weeks together in the house. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) Susan, obviously, wasn't single for long. Her next lover was yet another member of the darts teams that both Richard and Michael had played for. Third time lucky, maybe. Yes. And if she hadn't learned a lesson by shagging her way through the same group of men, she also hadn't learned anything about shacking up with people, as a new man was also moved into the house fairly quickly. She told her new lover that Richard Collins owed her money, riling him up enough that he promised to get the money back for her. After an angry exchange between her two conquests, Susan's new man brutally assaulted Collins and was later arrested. He got tried and given a custodial sentence for his actions. But the attention of another new man in her life wasn't enough for Susan. Being 1981, CB radios were getting more and more popular in the UK, despite being illegal. Never one to ignore a money-making opportunity, the UK government, led by then Home Secretary Willie Whitelaw, (laughs) Willie Whitelaw, (laughs) what a name, (laughs) legalised CB radios on the 2nd of November 1981. And for our younger listeners, CB radio was, in fact, sod it, Here's the Wikipedia description, quote, a system allowing short-distance, person-to-person, bi-directional voice communication between individuals, end quote. I used to think of it as lorry drivers used to use them a lot, didn't they? Because you, yeah. you'd have like your own little call sign and you would, you know, you'd speak and then other people would be able to hear you in the nearby vicinity and would respond. So you might get several people all joining in the same sort of chat over CB That's radio. perfect. If you see any TV or films that have, uh, any TV shows or films that have lorry drivers and they're on, the handheld radio, it's a CB radio. Okay. That's probably the best way to describe it. I've just put down, it was a radio device that allowed you to broadcast messages which others would respond to. And from memory, it was anyone locally that could hear you talking if they happened to be on the same channel you were using. And I'm pretty sure there were one or two channels which everyone broadcast on. And when you found someone that you wanted to chat to, you'd skip over to and you go, oh, we're talking on channel 40 or whatever. Yes. Each user had their own username and a myriad of phrases that they could use. 10 big buddy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember locally to me, there was a guy who went by the name Big Mac because he was a big bloke and his surname started with Mac. So imagine I know, right? What would your uh, CB name be? I think mine would have to be Costa Lover. I honestly don't know. Large Skinny Latte. Redhead. <laughs> Redhead. <laughs> Sublime true crime. Bang. <laughs> Susan bought herself a CB radio and being the shy, demure lady that she was, she used the call sign Nympho. Because of course she did. <laughs> Within no time at all, she was well known in local CB radio groups. Because of course she was. <laughs> no shit. 
Having what one website described as, quote, a somewhat warped sense of fidelity. I fucking love that quote. End quote. Susan soon had another lover who went by the name of Magic Man, a man known to police for being involved with black magic and drug offences. She also made the most of her newfound relative wealth, holding drinking parties and showing porn films to groups of her friends. And again, can I ask, where the fuck were her children? I'm baffled. I find it hard enough to record a podcast (laughs) in a house with two teenagers who are old enough to be told, can you just give us half an hour, please? Yep. The kids are obviously not with the dad either, are they? (laughs) I know. Absolutely mental. While Susan was busy partying, Professor Evans had received the histology slides that he'd been waiting for. As he had suspected, these indicated that Michael's body had traces of a toxic substance, most probably paraquat. The professor sent his report to the renal unit who were shocked as they'd been told that the tests for paraquat had all come back as negative. I wonder if anyone got bollocks over that. The conference was planned for January 1982, where they would discuss the anomalies and hopefully untangle the mess. I think it's all thanks to him as well, though. He was just like a dog with a bone, wasn't he? He did not want to let it go. I think he'd made some comment about how, you know, this was a healthy man. There is no reason why he should have had all of these symptoms. Yeah. Yeah, because it would have been very easy for him to go, oh, they've already said it's not, so... Yeah, he's dead, never mind, move on. Whilst the doctor was preparing notes for the conference, he noticed that Michael Barber's file had no notes regarding the samples being received and examined. He made some phone calls. The National Poisons Reference Centre revealed the samples hadn't ever been sent off for analysis. Thankfully, the tissue samples were quickly recovered from the mortuary. I suppose that was the bucket, was it? Probably. (laughs) And sent to ICI, the manufacturers of Paraquat. At the same time, serum samples were sent out to the National Poisons Unit. Both sets of results came back quickly, and both confirmed the presence of paraquat. Mm. Professor James Cameron, not the Titanic director. Nope. It might be, actually. It doesn't say, yeah. doesn't say otherwise. <laughs> Never know. Professor James Cameron looked at all the evidence before declaring that this was a clear case of murder. I wonder how he decided it was murder and not a case of accidental ingestion. Yeah, good point. I, I think when you look at it and go, well, he was healthy and young and there was no suicide note and his missus has inherited a shed load of money. Yeah, I suppose so. And also maybe he was lucid enough to say, I don't know what's happened. Yeah. In yeah, hospital. Oh, mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how lucid he was because mm. uh, he was put on ventilators and stuff fairly quickly. True. Mm. Tranquilised. On the 15th of February 1982, a consultant at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School contacted both the Southend coroner and the local police In a letter, he detailed how Michael Barber had died painfully from poison. Detective Chief Inspector John Clarion of the Essex Police took charge of the case. He knew that everything done so far would need to be rechecked. Anyone who would come into contact with either of the Barbers while Michael was in hospital would have to be contacted. This included doctors and nurses, as well as porters, lab technicians, analysts and anybody who had overseen the case. Clarion also arranged for scientific tests to be repeated. In the meantime, the police also interviewed Michael's friends and family again. I think reading that gives you some idea of the scope of investigations, isn't it? You don't even think, you know, or porters, lab technicians, that all Just those everyone, isn't it? people on the periphery had yeah. to be questioned. Questioned again as well, mm. not just the first time. When they interrogated Richard Collins, he quickly admitted that Susan had told him that she intended to kill her husband, even going so far as to admit that she'd once asked him to cut the brake lines on Michael's car. Not only that, but he was also quick to reveal the time they both returned from visiting Michael in Hammersmith Hospital. Susan had been asked by medical staff about poison. When they got home, 
Susan immediately poured the contents of her husband's medicine bottle down the sink. That's pretty damning. Yeah, um, and obviously what that's insinuating is the fact that uh, she poisoned him mm. and then poisoned his me- medicine. Yeah. Detectives were fast building up a case for a murder trial. Their investigations revealed that Paraquat could only be purchased by those with a genuine need, namely farmers in the Rilk. The detectives needed to find where Michael could have come into contact with it. They'd also been told by ICI that a stanching agent had been added to the chemical which gave off an offensive smell to prevent people drinking it, as well as an emetic which would induce vomiting if swallowed. And I'm sure I read that this wasn't added until the 1970s, which was after Michael had got his supply of the weed killer. I can really imagine it because quite often you do, you get a hold of things like that. It's like tins of paint, isn't it? You go looking through the garage and there's all sorts of shite from like 15 plus years previously that yeah. you just go, I'll just keep that, it might be useful. Yes. Digging a little deeper into Michael's past, they also found out that he'd once worked for a gardener. Speaking to neighbours, they confirmed that he had a supply of Ramoxone, which is Paraquat's brand name, in his shed. Although how the neighbours would know that, I've no idea. Well, see, I think it's probably that they borrowed it. They'd be like, Oi, Michael, have you got that weird colour? I'll get rid of these bloody dandelions. And he's gone, yeah, I've got the super great stuff here. Here you go. <laughs> Bring it back when you're done. Dandelions, is that just a British thing or are they Don't ubiquitous? Know. Yeah. Hmm? They're probably known as something else in America. They might well be. That egg, pain in the arse. Eggplant weeds or something. <laughs> Finally, the police felt that they had enough evidence to swoop into action. On the 5th of April, 1982, nine months after Michael's death, Susan was arrested at home. Richard, who was at work in a warehouse at the time, was also arrested. Susan quickly confessed. She had resented having her affair found out, and when Michael had hit her, she'd resolved to end the marriage. I wonder if there's an easy way to... Sit in the mirror. I wonder. Just some type of paperwork formality. Oh. Type. oh. <laughs> she had told police that she'd taken Gramoxone from the shed and mixed it in with the steak and kidney pie that she was serving for dinner. Nothing happened. Dismayed, she did it again. This time, Michael developed a sore throat. When he got medicine from the doctor, she also laced that with Paraquat. For his part, Richard said in his interview that he had known what Susan intended to do, but quickly added that he had taken no part in the killing. He just didn't bother to stop her or to tell anyone about it at the time. He revealed that Susan had asked him to cut the brakes on Michael's car, something he'd managed to talk her out of. The case went to Chelmsford Crown Court on the 1st of November 1982. Susan admitted poisoning Michael's food, saying, quote, I got it from the shed from a container. I gave it to him in his dinner, mixed with the gravy. I gave him the second lot because the first did not seem to work, end quote. Of course, that's what you do if you're poisoning someone, isn't it? Well, keep on going. <laughs> Just keep on lacing try, them with try, poison. Try until, yeah, eventually it'll happen. She also claimed that she only wanted to make him ill, not kill him. Quote, he had just beaten me up and I wanted to get away with my children. It's the first time she's mentioned that. <laughs> I thought if he was ill, he would be able to come after me. I just wanted him to suffer as I have suffered. Oh, no, well, she suffered so much not getting enough sex. Jesus <laughs> Christ, I mean, you know, she's married, she's got a bloke on the side, but, you know... She is suffering. I, I I do feel for her, the murdering cow, for the fact that he hit her. Mm. Because I, I, I'm I staunchly, firmly in the camp of you shouldn't hit people. Mm. Um, but, yeah, there's there's ways and means of not poisoning people. To the, well, yeah, you just don't put poison in, them, in their steak pie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've had some really bad dinners in my time. <laughs> Mainly cooked by me. <laughs> 
I, I, I promise you, though, there has been no paraquat in anything I've cooked you. It's just been generally shit. It's, it's the uh, the astounding way that you burn the crust and leave the ice in the middle of the pie. Oh, no, sorry. That's <gasps> that's when I go to West Ham. It's the West Ham pie. Oh, so that's not me. That's not me. I, I'm famed for producing like baby food style slop when I'm trying to make some type of stew. The kids joke about it. Like, my kids set the piss out of me endlessly. For that was cooking. an astounding reel that time. <laughs> so bad. <clears throat> the judge, Mr. Justice Wolf, a howlingly good judge name there. Howling. Didn't believe her. And Susan Barber was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. In his summing up, he said, quote, you have no idea, by the way, how, how much I wanted to put, quote, oh. <laughs> you prop. <laughs> In his summing up, he said, quote, I cannot think of a more evil way of disposing of a human being, end quote. Really, judge? Really? I can think of loads. Maybe you should become a true crime podcast host. You'd be amazed at the creative and evil ways that people discard murder victims. Some of the shit we have to read I when know. we're compiling cases. You just wouldn't imagine people could be that horrible. And yet. <laughs> and yet we love researching <laughs> it. <laughs> well, no, some oh of my it, God, look what they did to this one. Oh, no, some of them I must admit I start reading and I go, yeah, that's not for me to do because it's too gruesome and I'm yeah. a bit of a wimp when it comes down to stuff like that. Richard Collins, who the court heard strong evidence of his good character, was given the lesser charge of conspiracy to murder. Judge Wolfe pointed out that he had not taken part in either the planning of or the act of the murder. Nevertheless, he was found guilty and given two years imprisonment. Now, I actually feel a bit sorry for Richard Collins. He was only 15 when they started the affair. That is statutory rape. He was below the age of consent and he was completely taken advantage of at that point. Yes, but equally, he was in his mid-twenties when all this happened. He was, but I don't know. Do you not think maybe she was exerting some sort of, yeah, of course. control over him from that stage? Oh, definitely, definitely. But I also think that he was, legally, an adult. Yes. Um, what got me is um, they heard strong evidence of his good character. This is the bloke who'd been shagging his married neighbour um, and had been party to the wife, or the knowledge of the wife, the wife wanted to kill the husband. Yes. He probably plays a really good game of darts. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. Judge Wolf was like, but hang on, I've seen him down the dark club. I want him on my team. <laughs> and that is the case of the bury me in a Y-shaped coffin killer. And hopefully you now get why we called it that. I think, though, that in your... So in my extra time bit, I've got a bit more about her shagging about because... You only mentioned a couple of people there. She was actually like having proper full-on sex parties from her CB radio crew. Yeah, it's um, the, yeah. The more you read on it, the the more as she is definitely an info. She's an, an nymphomaniac, and I don't use that term lightly in this case. Yeah. She is sounds like she is sex obsessed, and I have no idea how she coped in prison. No, because she she must have that. You know, people um, get uh, Hollywood celebrities get um, sex addicts. Uh, what are they called? Treatment. Yeah, um, yeah, like Sex Addicts Anonymous. Is the yes. Um, and I'm sure she must be along those lines. Yeah, I think she must be. And I still want to know what the fuck's happened to her children. Yeah, oh, the, you've got a little bit about that in Sublime Extra Time, haven't you? Yes. Um, they, they were taken care of, but it's it's a bizarre case in terms of oh. they're not mentioned anywhere. No. There's so little about them. No. So, what are your thoughts? What would your CB radio name be? I like that question because the amount of email addresses that I see in my line of work, because I'm a mortgage broker, so people have to give me their personal details, and some of the email addresses we see are fantastic. Let us know. You can email us, dan at sublimetruecrime.com, 
or Elaine at sublimetruecrime.com. Or you can reach us via the Facebook page. Just search for Sublime True Crime. If you're enjoying the series, please leave us a review. Preferably a five-star one, please. Pretty please, as it helps us to reach more people. And also, total attention whores and love it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you want to leave us a review, you can do it at sublimetruecrime.com forward slash rate. We'll do our best to read out the five-star reviews on the podcast where we can. And don't forget, you can hear more about this case exclusively over on Patreon, as well as getting access to other goodies. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash sublimetruecrime. If you can think of any cases that you'd like us to cover, please do let us know. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>